Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, On this day, 50 years ago, the Supreme Court issued a landmark decision, Roe v. Wade. It made abortion a constitutionally protected right and simultaneously gave millions of people greater freedom over decisions that they could make about their body. But last year, that ruling was overturned. While anti-abortion activists celebrated, critics of the move argue women today have fewer rights than their grandmothers. Today, we get perspective from women who've had abortions before, during, and after Roe and explore what's next for reproductive care in America. Later in the show, the Jane Roe in the Roe v. Wade case was Norma McCorvey, who was seeking an abortion when she agreed to be the plaintiff. But who was she, and how did she shape the legacy of the landmark legislation? Norma was a complicated person, but I was able to spend the last four years of her life with her and together, as I mentioned, with her private papers and also interviewing many people who were more reliable witnesses to her life, I was able to sort of put her story together. Josh Prager's sweeping narrative, The Family Row, an American Story, looks back at the pivotal characters in the history of Roe v. Wade and how the case fueled the opposing social movements. But first, joining me remotely, Rebecca Hart Holder, president of Reproductive Equity Now. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Kaylee. Thanks for having me. Sally Ben Bassett, member of the Bad Old Days Posse, a group that shares their experiences of abortion before Roe v. Wade. Thanks for joining us. It's nice to be here. Thank you. And Sophie, whose last name we are not revealing, who is a volunteer with Shout Your Abortion. Welcome, Sophie. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Glad to have all of you. I want to start this way. On January 22, 1973, when the Supreme Court handed down its decision on Roe v. Wade, Walter Cronkite on CBS announced the landmark ruling Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said that the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. Thus, the anti-abortion laws of 46 states were rendered unconstitutional. So I want to make a point about uh, that night that Walter Cronkite broadcast that news. The entire coverage on abortion was less than four minutes. And overall, the initial response in the U.S. to Roe's passage was pretty minimal. Uh, Rebecca Hartholder, can you think <laughs> that imagine that today? No, it, I mean, it's 
impossible to imagine today, but it is the fact that it, you know, it wasn't until several years later when um, many conservative politicians realized that they could make abortion an issue that drove voters to the polls, um, that abortion became so polarized. So we do live in a very different country today, but um, it was not a controversial decision um, 50 years ago when Roe was decided. Um, let me follow up and ask, were you surprised by the overturning of the Roe case um, last June 24th, 2022? I wish I could say I was, but I was not. Um, when the high court refused to overturn SB 8, the Texas law that banned abortion starting at six weeks in September um, of last year, I think those of us who were in the advocacy space saw the writing on the wall and knew that the um, anti-choice folks had the majority on the court and they were going to vote to overturn Roe. Okay. So, Sally Ben Bassett, you are um, connected with the Bad Old Days Posse, which the name says it all, because the Bad Old Days were a time when abortion was illegal, it's pre row, and when um, trying to seek one was really quite harrowing. But you yourself did have to seek one. Talk about your own experience and then what you know from working with the Bad Old Days Posse. Sure. I did have a boyfriend at the time and lied to go to a gynecologist and was fitted for birth control. Um, I had a diaphragm. Most people today don't know about diaphragms, but they were available and uh, found myself pregnant, even though I was using it correctly. And it was not, uh, it was not a hard decision to make that I was not in a position both emotionally and financially uh, to raise a child. And so this time clock started in terms of trying to find someone who I could go to to have an abortion. This is illegal, it's 1970, and everything was done through someone knew someone who knew someone who knew someone. And the harder decision at that moment was, who was I going to tell that I was pregnant and wanting to have an abortion? I was told about this man who claimed to be a doctor to this day. I don't know if he was. And at the time, because it was illegal, you can't call and say, uh, I want to make an appointment for an abortion. Um, so I was told that I had to say, I had severe cramps and couldn't work. And then I had to come up with the money uh, to pay for it. At that time, I was told that the abortion would cost $300. One of the things my mother had always taught me was to have some secret money that was mine, that I didn't have to explain where it came from or how I wanted to use it. And I had about $150 uh, in that, you know, hidden pocketbook. And um, I asked my boyfriend if uh, he would give me the rest of the money, which he did. I went with uh, a very, very close friend to the appointment. It was in an office building in downtown Washington. And there was a woman in the uh, front office she checked me in, she took my money. She said, it will take about 45 minutes 
and please don't talk. I went into the room, This there was a table. Uh, I have to say it was very sparse looking, um, but it, it was clean. And this person told me to lie down and uh, again, be quiet. Uh, there was no one else in the room. I wasn't allowed to bring my friend into the room. And basically, I lay down on this table and closed my eyes and really spent the next 15, 20 minutes feeling like whatever happened to me, I deserved. I had gotten myself into this position and I deserved whatever was going to happen. And uh, it was very painful. There was no anesthesia of any sort, no comfort. Um, no one was holding my hand or talking to me through telling me what was gonna happen. And after it was over, the woman came in, she said, um, stay here for 10 minutes. She checked to see if I was bleeding. And she said, when I open the door, you'll know it's time for you to leave. So Sally, this is, this is a perfectly horrible story you're telling, which is the point of it, because you represent the bad old days posse. Um, so I, I, I'm sure my listeners would wonder, what did you feel on the on the day that uh, the Supreme Court overturned Roe? First of all, what did you think when Roe was passed and then when it overturned it? Because, you know, it was a big impact in your life. Right. Well, actually, I <clears throat> I had a second abortion after Roe. Um, when I had the illegal abortion, I actually started doing some uh, abortion counseling in Washington because I felt like I needed to do something positive for other women. Um, so I did that for about a year or so. And uh, several years after that, I moved to Boston where I still live. And in 1975, again, I did become pregnant and uh, this time with the person who I'm still married to 45 years later um, and had a legal abortion. So the day that Roe passed was monumental, but for me, the real significance was comparing and feeling the difference between having had an illegal abortion and having had a legal abortion. Um, when Roe was overturned, anger, frustration, fear, all those emotions um, were part of my reaction uh, and they continue today. Mm. Sophie, I want to bring you into this because um, I'm sure you're listening to the bad old days, um, which were the bad old days for a lot of women who were seeking abortions pre-Roe when it was um, illegal. Um, you lived in the post-Roe world um, and um, tell your story. You're a mother, you're, you know, living your life um, in California, doing your thing, um, and discover that um, you're pregnant and it's not a good time for you. Yeah, absolutely. So 
you know, for a little bit of context, my own mother had an abortion when I was young. Um, and it's sort of a, a similar situation. Hers was actually for a wanted pregnancy that had really serious complications. And she actually ended up having a later abortion, which even in California in the 90s, which is when it happened, was really hard to have. It was a decision that she made largely for me um, as a child and, and wanting to make sure that she could give me as her daughter as much attention and love as possible. And so I've always been somebody who really cared about this issue. I had a baby. My child is a little over one years old now. And um, a couple of months ago, um, actually right around my own birthday and my child's birthday, um, I realized I was pregnant. I'm still breastfeeding. And so my birth control options are a little bit more limited and they're just imperfect. And I got pregnant. And so I ordered abortion pills for myself. By the time I received the pills, I was in this sort of interesting, I think, new age of abortion position, which is that I was sort of trying to manage my, my life, my work schedule in a way that I had one day of the week that I could have an abortion. And that was it. And I didn't know because it had been over Thanksgiving. I couldn't call a doctor. I couldn't call um, a clinic to find out when they were open. Everything was closed. I wasn't sure if I was going to be having an abortion in a clinic or in a doctor's office. And so I was hoping I could have an in-clinic or in-office abortion, um, not for safety, but but quite frankly, just for comfort. And uh, But I also didn't have the luxury of waiting to find out if I could make the appointment. And so the pills need about 24 to 48 hours. Uh, uh, you take a, the first set of pills and then um, you take the second about 24 hours later. And so I needed to begin that process in case I didn't get an appointment. And I ended up taking the first pills and uh, beginning the process of an at-home abortion, knowing what I know about the pills, that if I went in and did book an appointment in a clinic, I would be able to go through no problem with that. And I ended up getting an appointment. So I had sort of a hybrid abortion, which um, I got to sort of have a very oddly, in, almost more informed, I think, than maybe I would have been in a pre-row era. Um, that doesn't mean that I, I think it's good, but I think in out of necessity, people who can get pregnant have been in a position now where we have to learn about our options in, su in, in such depth. And so I think that I had a tiny, very privileged taste of that, what you know, abortion access post row could look like if we keep fighting for it. And so that, that was my experience. So that's Sophie, who had an abortion uh, post-Row. And earlier you heard from Sally Ben-Bassett, a member of the Bad Old Days Posse, who had an abortion um, pre-Row. Um, Rebecca Hartholder, let's go back to you. Put this all in context, because I don't think that people hear these stories, first of all, which is why we're appreciative of uh, Shout Your Abor Abortion and the Bad Old Days Posse for coming forward with uh, those stories. Uh, but also now, as we're looking at what is not the 50th anniversary of the Roe decision, how do you how do you see where we are now? Um, by the, we, I mean, America is now in the in the country. Yeah, I think 
Let me start by saying that abortion care and access to abortion is a very popular winning political issue. And I think that we are seeing a new um, kind of national understanding of the power of voters to push back on um, unpopular anti-choice policies. Now, of course, it becomes more difficult when there's gerrymandering and there's, um, uh, you know, targeted um, attacks on voting that disenfranchise people. But I think what we really see in the post-Roe um, world is how popular abortion is. Um, I also think we need to spend a lot of time normalizing abortion as part of healthcare. Abortion should not be something pushed to the side. It should not be, you know, quote unquote, a women's issue. That is, that's wrong. All kinds of people need abortion care and it should be um, a mainstream part of healthcare. Roe was always the floor. It was never enough. It only guaranteed the legal right. It didn't mean that you could actually access the right. And in the 50 years um, since Roe was overturned or since Roe was decided, many, many people could not access abortion care when they needed it and deserved it. And so our job here in Massachusetts has been to really think about how do we create a legal and policy environment where every person who wants abortion care can get that care regardless of their status. Um, that is incredibly important because we want abortion care to be normal and, and mainstreamed and really free from shame and stigma. So I want to pick up um, your point about the overwhelming support for abortion in the country. The post-Roe Supreme Court ruling, other polls showed, again, uh, most Americans say uh, they want, um, they think that it, a woman should or other person should have the ability to get access to abortions. Now, some of them have disagreements about, you know, do I think this is, you know, sh should never happen um, personally, but from access point, most Americans say folks should be able to do this. They think this is part of it. And that still remains. That was before the when the Roe decision and that was after the most recent Roe decision. So I just want to bring that up. I want to circle back to you, Sophie, for just a second, sure. because um, you used uh, you described your abortion post Roe as um, uh, uh hybrid using the pills and then going to see the doctor. And I want to emphasize that um, there was just a recent ruling by the Biden administration and through the FDA that um, there's more access to those pills in those states where this is legal. I want to be clear about that because there are states where there are limited access to pills or there's just outright banned. But in those states where it's legal, you no longer have to go in person to pick up the pills, which was a big issue. And they are more readily accessible now or will be because they don't have to just be in specialty clinics, but they can be in now um, bigger pharmacies. And that is expected to happen somewhat shortly. So uh, with that in mind, Sophie, what's your thought about that in terms of uh, what Rebecca said about normalizing abortion as a part of reproductive health care? Because um, I would see. I would think that access in a very private way, which is what was taken away through in this last road decision, um, with regard to pills, may actually um, be impactful in a way that wasn't anticipated by um, some. 
Ab absolutely. Because by the way, I mean, I, I don't know the exact number. I think it's something about like one in three women or one in three people who can get pregnant have had an abortion, which is a, a very nice high number. Uh, I think that if you actually take into account the number of people who have received what qualifies as abortion care, which is then, you know, including anybody who's had any kind of miscarriage management and several other types of, you know, sort of reproductive medical health, emotional, physical care, it's closer to one half or, or potentially more. And right, this is, this is something that impacts pretty much everybody. And even if you haven't had an abortion, your life is better in ways you either know or cannot know because somebody else you know or love had one. And I believe that to my core. Um, and I think that um, this sort of right, removing the stigma around abortion, talking about it. And I also think, quite frankly, that even in a lot of reproductive and abortion access spaces in progressive areas, we talk about abortion rights, but we don't talk about abortion process. And I think that what that means is that when people come to the place in their life where they need that care, even if they believe in it, they don't really know where to turn or what to expect. Maybe they look up Planned Parenthood, maybe they Google abortion, right? And, and depending on where you live, that could very easily lead you to, instead of actual abortion care, it could lead you to a you know crisis pregnancy center that we know is basically designed to spread misinformation about abortion and dissuade people from seeking the care that they want and need. Um, and so I think a big part of this next wave is not just normalizing and talking about abortion as a right, but normalizing and talking about it as, as a process, right? What does it involve? So what, what did Biden do, right? What's legal, what's not legal? What are the abortion pills, right? Mifepristone and misoprostol, these are both pills that are used in other areas of medicine as well. And part of what we may see as states crack down on these pills is that people who have things like stomach ulcers may suffer because they can't get the care that they need. People who are having miscarriages may get infections, may get really sick, may die because these pills are restricted. And so um, I think it's really important that the, the Biden administration move is important. It is not enough. It is a great first step. Um, but we need these pills, quite frankly, to be available without a prescription, to be available everywhere. Um, also, there's a lot of great resources, right? You can access these pills no matter where you live in the country, and I think everybody should know that. It's not legal everywhere in the country, and there are great resources out there in terms of like the uh, reproductive health and like legal hotlines and things like that, that people can sort of check in with before, during, after receiving pills if they're planning to do a self-managed abortion in a state where it's not legal. Um, but the infrastructure is there. And I think it's the work of normalizing the conversations around abortion and also exposing as many people to the existing network so that we can really connect the dots between what actually is an amazing network of organizations covering a lot of different bases around this issue. Now, I'll be remiss if I don't mention um, and point out that there is a very strong national, um, quote unquote, pro-life movement. Um, and last January, before the uh, Roe versus Wade was overturned in June, um, they had their annual anti-abortion march in D.C., in Washington, D.C. And this is Jeannie Mancini, who was the March for Life president, who felt very comfortable then that Roe was about to be overturned. Roe is not settled law. 
Is there a different energy here with uh, the Mississippi case pending? Absolutely. Pro-lifers are very energized with the possibility of Roe being overturned, which would mean that then the abortion legislation would go back to the states. And right after Roe was overturned, this is a pro-life activist who was interviewed by CNN outside of the Supreme Court, um, and she was pretty fired up. To know, I want everyone to know that women are stronger than their circumstances. And no matter what situation that you find yourself in, the post Roe generation, the pro life generation is here to say you can. Abortion tells women you can't. You can't go to college. You can't achieve your dreams. You have to have the right to end the life of your child so that you can live your dream. And I think that's misogyny. I think that that is disgusting. And I think that we're better than that. Um, Sally Ben Bassett. Um strong feelings out there and this is going to be the the post row environment uh, is not going to be any less fraught than the 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 years since 1973 i think there's a lot of uh power behind them yes but i think people understand the need to um work together and i i think we're in a good place I'm actually quite hopeful um, that we're going to prevail. Was that you, Rebecca? Yeah, Kelly, I'd love to just jump in and make two points um, quickly. One is that, um, you know, the, 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 the quotes that you played from the anti-choice folks who rallied last year um, made my blood boil. And it's important to remind folks that abortion is not the floor for them either. They're coming for birth control. They're coming for sex education. They're coming for IVF. They've made it very clear that this is just the beginning of their attack on reproductive freedom. This is not the end. The goal is not ban abortion in the states that will ban abortion in a post-Roe world. It's ban abortion, ban contraception, go after our ability to make um, choices for ourselves. And I want to be very clear that abortion is about empowering people. It's about freedom. It's about giving people control of their lives and futures, and people are grateful for abortion. So the idea that um, somehow the anti-choice movement is saving us is, is as wrong as it is offensive to me. Well, one of the things that I did learn um, in prepping for this conversation was I, I was surprised that the uh, so-called crisis pregnancy centers are outnumber abortion access clinics because of this fraught struggle we've been having for 50 years, three to one. Here in Massachusetts, so that's the research that reproductive equity now does here in Massachusetts. We think this is a, you know, a safe state that where abortion is codified and protected, but we have the highest number of crisis pregnancy clinics in all of New England, and they outnumber legitimate pro providers three to one. And to be clear, they are uh, centers that are uh, not supportive of abortion as a part of reproductive health, just so people are, are clear about what the mission is there, um, and are supported by um, anti-abortion um, folks who are who, who feel like this is a this is the way that they can and reach out to um, women who who they believe are quote in crisis unquote. All right, so let's look out. Roe was overturned. All of you said none of all of you said you were not surprised. You thought it might happen at some point. So next year, next five years, next ten years, um, post Roe, what do you see happening? Um, I'll start with you, Sally. I think people are going to be educated uh, both about 
again, the connections of abortion and healthcare and specifically around um, medical abortions as well as uh, surgical abortions. One of the things, uh, the bad old days when we do our talks, we've met with many, uh, with several um, medical students. Um, they're not being trained to do abortions. Uh, and I think re looking at what new doctors are learning and uh, what they're being trained for will be uh, one of those places that we have to look at. Um, so we'll keep fighting. That's, uh, that's my hope. Sophie? Um, yeah, I think the next five years are about abortion pills, self-managed abortion about taking our rights into our own hands um, and that legal is not the same as moral. Um, I also think, and this ties a little bit back to the clip from the anti-choice rally, that the next couple of years are gonna be about us realizing that maybe that movement appears strong, but what they really are is loud and they are not strong like we're strong because we are, are an overwhelming majority of the country who supports abortion rights. And I think that one of the greatest failures of the last couple of years, the last several decades, right, leading to the overturning of Roe, is that all of us on the sort of, I'll say the correct side of this issue, right, got tricked into thinking that it's really a 50-50 split, that that we have to be quiet about abortions. We have to make them safe, legal, and rare. We have to be ashamed and keep it to ourselves. And and beg for, you know, people to just let us do them because we need them and we promise we'll be quiet about it because it's so shameful. And that's really harmed us. And so I think that the next five, 10 years of abortion rights and fighting for abortion access is going to be about us recognizing that we have to be as loud or louder than this very, very minority group of Americans who are anti-choice and that we have to be we have to be ready to to match them and then overwhelm them with our support for our information about and our knowledge about abortion rights, abortion access and abortion care, because there is nothing to be ashamed of. And we can't be quiet about it anymore because that's how you get a tiny group of people taking away the majority of people's rights. And we won't do that anymore. So I think that's what it's going to be about. Rebecca, you get the last word. You know, overturning Roe showed us that the fight for abortion access is every bit as much in state legislatures, in city councils, in school committees, as it is in the halls of the Supreme Court or of Congress. So, you know, the next five to 10 years, the reproductive uh, health rights and justice movement needs to focus on state legislatures across the country to defend and expand access to care. We need to oust anti-abortion legislators and we need to overturn dangerous abortion bans. We are doubling down because we cannot wait another 50 years to build our state and local organizing power to take back our rights. Well, I thank you all for joining me today for this very important conversation. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Kelly. Rebecca Hartholder is president of Reproductive Equity Now. Sally Ben-Bassett is a member of the Bad Old Days Posse, a group whose members share their abortion experiences before Roe v. Wade. And Sophie, whose last name we are not revealing, is a volunteer with Shout Your Abortion. 
Coming up, it's fair to say that what most Americans know about the abortion debate is the recent history and current events of the divisive debate on opposing sides of the issue. But how did we get here? In his book, The Family Row, An American Story, author Josh Prager profiles the Roe v. Wade plaintiff, traces the roots of the court case, and the social movements which grew out of it. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. 